Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling the supremacy of Christ. The word supremacy is synonymous with the word superior. And what I want you to hear through the message today is this. The new covenant which has been given to us through the shed blood of Jesus is superior to everything and everyone. We are held together by Him and Him alone. We receive abundant blessings from our Father simply because He loves us and because of what Jesus did on the cross, His sacrifice on the cross. We begin unpacking these truths today in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. The Bible says the Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. Watch what it says now. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. In other words, there was nothing random about God. There was nothing experimental with God. All things were created for Him, by Him, and through Him. He is before all things. Now watch these words. Please, fasten your eyes on those words. In Him, not you, in Him all things hold together. So if you think you're the one holding your life together, I've got some news for you. It's in Him, the Bible says, that all things are held together or hold together. In the quietness of my study last night, I saw this picture in my mind of a young bride who has been married just a few days, and suddenly her husband, her new husband, is rushed off to fight in a distant war. And the only way they have contact is to write one another. And she gets out her stationery and she begins to write. There are no loss for words. There's more words flowing from her heart than her hand can keep up with as she begins to pen and pour out her heart and her soul. And as she writes and she keeps turning the page in her notebook and filling it with words and emotions, the tears begin to fall from her eyes and stain the paper. And as she tries to brush the tears away, it makes the stain even worse. She writes and she writes and she writes. And then finally, she gets to the end. And at the end of that letter, she draws this big heart. She gets out her favorite perfume and she puts perfume on all the pages so that when he gets it, it will be fresh in his nostrils and it will remind him, yes, my lover wrote that. And then she gets out a tube of lipstick and she puts lipstick on her lips. And she takes where that big heart is and she puts it up to her mouth and she puts her lips inside of that heart. Oh, don't think that hasn't been done before. Then she gets out an envelope and she addresses it to where her husband is stationed. She puts the correct amount of postage on it. But now watch this. She takes the envelope and she folds it up tiny. 
And she takes her letter and wraps it around the envelope and staples it closed and drops it in the mailbox. We say, man, that would be ridiculous. You see, the envelope has at least a couple of purposes. One is to protect the contents. Number two, it's to get it to its destination. And I've come by this morning to let you know that Jesus poured out his soul and his heart and his blood and his sweat and his tears in Gethsemane and at the cross. And he didn't do that just so that it could be wasted. And so that that letter would go nowhere. He did this because he had us in mind. And Jesus took the letter and he put it inside the envelope. And all he had to say, and we are that letter, by the way. He took that letter, he put it inside of the envelope. And all he had to do was write on there, to daddy. And underneath that, I imagine, I, could, I pictured him writing just John 3.16. For my daddy so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I want you to know something, that letter would get to its destination. Jesus didn't pour out all these things just so that he could waste his life and his blood, his precious blood. What is put in Christ is held together by Christ. Religion will tell us to put the envelope inside of the letter. Or another way to say it, to put Christ inside of the Mosaic law. No, that's called mixture and it causes confusion. It is Christ alone, apart from the law, that you and I are held together. I don't think we would argue that point, but I want that to marinate in your heart this morning, that we are held together by Him and Him alone. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 2 through 6, we find these truths. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the Corinthians. He says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Oh, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers, watch what it says, of a new covenant. I just can't get enough of that thought, of a new covenant. He has made us competent ministers of a new covenant. Watch what he says now, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Religion will tell us that you and I are the ones that hold our salvation intact. Friends, that is also not true. It is in Him, the Bible says, that we live and we move and we have our being. It is in Him that all things are held together. We are held together by the blood of Jesus Christ through His everlasting envelope, we call it a covenant, and by the irrevocable promises of the Father, and we are sealed by the life of the Spirit. That is all in the Word. Now, because of this awe-inspiring truth that we are in Christ and we are held together by Christ, it releases in our heart the prodigious authenticity that all the spiritual blessings of the Bible become ours. 
All the spiritual blessings recorded in the word belong to you and they belong to me. And when we have this confidence working in our heart that we are held together by him, we will no longer walk around thinking, am I worthy for the blessing? Am I worthy for all these spiritual blessings? No, the Bible says that we have all the spiritual blessings. We find this truth in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Not who will, not who's going to, who has blessed us. How has he blessed us? In heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been blessed in the heavenly realms, which is where we are seated, by the way, in Christ. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. You know what? I don't even know what that looks like. But I know if Jesus put it together, it's awesome. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Oh, watch this now. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And then it says, in him we have redemption. In other words, it means we've been restored. In him we have redemption. It's a term that means we've been bought out of slavery. In him we have redemption. We are not runaway slaves, friends. We have been bought out of the slave market. We're no longer slaves. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. And it says it's in him we have redemption. How does it come? Through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now, when it says in accordance, it literally means in agreement or in harmony. So God has grace. God uh, has all these wonderful attributes. And he says, it's in that kind of spirit. It's in that kind of agreement. It's in that kind of harmony that it will manifest in your life. Just exactly the way it flows is the way it's intended to be received. It's not supposed to change along the way. So in those six scriptures, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, we find several spiritual blessings. Number one, he says holiness. Now this is not a holiness that we have achieved. This is holiness, the holiness of Christ. This holiness came from Christ. That is a spiritual blessing that the fathers, you better thank God he sees you as holy. You know, when we were singing Cornerstone, the part that touches my heart, and it really impacted me this morning, when it says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Watch what it says. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Because if I'm dressed in anything but his righteousness, I don't know if I could open my eyes. But I'm dressed in his righteousness. And then that song says, faultless stand before the throne. Oh, that just thrills my heart that I faultless stand before his throne. Why? Because I'm dressed in his righteousness. So the first thing we see as a spiritual blessing is holiness. And it's not your holiness, it's his holiness. And then we see blamelessness. That's a hard one for us. Are you kidding me? When we mess up, we want to blame ourselves. We want to shame ourselves. But the father says, when I look at you, remember my son mailed me a letter and I see you as holy, and I see you as blameless. We find the spiritual blessing in those scriptures 
of the Father's love. And there is nothing that can compare to the Father's love. We find the spiritual blessing of the sonship through Jesus Christ. It talked about grace. It talked about redemption. And it talked about the forgiveness of sins. Let me ask you a question. Did we earn any of these spiritual blessings? No. We didn't earn any of these. It is the supremacy of Christ at work in us, releasing the treasures of the Father's heart. So, looking again at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, let's add in verse 18 this time. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. There's that word, friends. The word supremacy comes from the root word supreme, and it means simply that which is higher that which is superior. When we think of the Supreme Court, we understand it to be the highest court in the nation. The decisions that the Supreme Court makes sets precedents that all the other lower courts must then follow. The thing I love about this is that no lower court can ever supersede a decision that was made on the Supreme Court level. In fact, not even Congress or the President of the United States can change can reject or can ignore a decision that the Supreme Court has made. Now, why is that important to us? Because Jesus is seated on the throne of supremacy. That's why it's important to us. That's where he's seated at. He's on the throne of supremacy. There is no higher throne. From that throne, our supreme Savior lavishes his Father's unrestrained love over us. Cascading grace pours continually into our hearts with unrestricted portion. Mercy is dispensed in impressive heights and depths and lengths. Oh my goodness. And when, listen to me, and when we fail in word or thought or deed, that same love, that same grace, that same mercy will remind us to look to the supremacy of Christ, not to your failure, but to the one who is able to reach down and pull you out of that pit, even if it's a pit of your own making. We are to look to the supremacy of Christ, the one that is above every failure, the one that is superior to every broken thought, and the one that is higher than every wayward deed. We look to the one whose decisions are so supreme, they cannot be undermined, they cannot be overruled, and they cannot cannot be reversed by any other throne or power or ruler or authority. No lower court has a voice and there is no higher court, friends. I want you to know something. Jesus rules and reigns from what Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 calls the throne of grace. And from that throne, he declares that we have been justified by his faith. We have been justified by his grace. We have been justified by His blood, and we have been justified by His name. Let's take a look at the scriptures that give us the hope of a good expectation regarding the truth 
that we have been justified, that we wear that righteousness that we sang about earlier. We wear that justification that Jesus has given us. The first place we see it is Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, or it literally means without the activities of the law or without the performance of the law. The Bible says a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, let's take a look where this faith comes from, just so you just don't think this is something that all belonged to you. This was just your faith. Let's take a look and see where that faith comes from. Staying in the same vein here, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith, look at that, of Jesus Christ. It's by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. These are scriptures that are worth meditating on. Where did the faith come from? It came from Christ. Whose faith is it? It's Jesus' faith. Where did we get it from? We got it from Jesus. We exercised a perfect faith and we got a perfect salvation. We got a perfect Savior that came and lived on the inside of us. So we are justified by Jesus' faith. We're also justified by Jesus' grace. Look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 7. That being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I love the fact that they connected eternal life with being justified by grace. Whose grace is it? Turns out it's Jesus's, isn't it? It says right there, then being justified, that literally means we've been pronounced innocent. It's not that we're just not guilty anymore. We've been declared innocent. There's a big difference between that. So we've been justified by Jesus's faith. We've been justified by Jesus's grace. But friends, I want to tell you something. We've been justified by Jesus's blood. We find that truth in Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Much more than being now justified by His blood. Not your blood, His blood. We shall be saved. That literally means protected. In other words, daddies put us in Jesus' body, Jesus' envelope, if you will. That envelope is sealed with the precious Holy Spirit, and it's addressed to daddy with the perfect amount of postage. I want you to know it says, much more being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So we're justified by His faith, we're justified by His grace, we're justified by His blood. And friends, I want to tell you something, we are justified by His name. We find that truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Are you catching it? We're justified by His faith, by His grace, by His blood, and by His name. One of the greatest spiritual blessings we possess is justification. Justification is the legal and formal acquittal from guilt by God who served as the judge. Oh, there was a courtroom hearing, believe me, there was. And Jesus took our punishment. Jesus was the one that said, Daddy, I'll go to the cross for him, for her, for the whole world, and those that will put their faith in me, we will call that justification. It's the pronouncement of the sinner as righteous and complete innocence. 
once they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The word justified comes from that Greek word, dekaiao. Now what I love about this is that word is in the present continuous tense, indicating the constant process of justification. The picture I got in my mind was this. When we walk to our kitchen sink and we turn on the faucet, instantly water begins to come out. Now, you only have so many feet of water lines in your house. So many gallons can be in those lines. But the second water starts flowing, more water starts coming behind it so that we can leave the water on all day long. That's justification for you. It is in the continual present tense where there's a constant justification. On our good days, we're still justified. On our bad days, we're still justified. We are constantly declared righteous by the Father because He says, I'm going to keep this in the continual present tense. Once a person has been justified, their righteousness remains in the present continuous tense. That means the blessing of our justification can never be depleted. It can never be taken away. Now, I want you to hear this one. It can never be reversed. Never be reversed. I was looking at a story in the Bible. It's found in Numbers chapter 22 and 23 and 24. It's about a king named Balak, B-A-L-A-K, Balak. And there's a man named Balaam. We say Balaam, but his name is Balaam. Balaam. Remember, he's the one that has the conversation with the donkey. Remember that? As I was thinking about that story and what God has done for us in terms of giving us righteousness and justification and knowing and believing the wonderful truth that this can never be reversed, the Holy Spirit took me to that story. The Israelites have been released from Egypt and they wander in the desert, of course, we know for 40 years, right? Well, in those 40 years, they encountered enemies at times, and they had to rise up and go to war with enemies. One of those enemies were the Canaanites, and there were so many of those Israelites, and the power of God was working on those Israelites that they defeated the Canaanites and took their land. They marched on, and they encountered the Amorites. And the Bible says they defeated the Amorites, and they moved on. The king of Moab had got word of this, that they were coming his direction. And so what is he going to think? We're next. We're next. He thought, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat them to the draw. You see, because I know a man. He doesn't live in my area, but he lives several miles from here. But I'm going to send some of my officials to him. His name is Balaam. One thing I know about Balaam, now he's kind of a strange character in the Bible. He's like a pagan prophet almost, you know. He hears the voice of God. He knows the voice of God. He appreciates the voice of God, but he's caught up in divination. He's caught up in sorcery. Just what he's caught up in. What they did is they sent officials to him with this promise that if he would curse those Israelites, because that king said, there is no way we can defeat that many Israelites. So I got a good idea. Let's just curse them. So this is going to make our job really easy. So he sent his officials to Balaam, and they told him the story. He said, the king is going to make you a very wealthy man. He's going to treat you really, really good. The only thing you've got to do is you've got to put a curse on the Israelites. He knew enough about God. He said, man, I, I can't curse what God's already blessed. But what he did is he entertained the thought. I think this is what happens sometimes in the Christian life. We understand these truths. 
We get them down deep in our heart, but then the enemy starts speaking to us sometimes. And sometimes we begin to entertain these lies. And so what does Balaam do? He tells the guys, spend the night. He said, I'll talk to the Lord in the morning, and then we'll just see what he wants to do. And sure enough, Balaam had the conversation with the Lord, and the Lord wasn't very happy about this thing. And so he went back and told him what the Lord had said. And so those officials went back to King Balak. So King Balak, what's he going to do? He sends guys that have more influence. They wear bigger rings on their fingers. They're his top officials. They have more influence. They have more power. They're more persuasive. And then they come to Balaam with the same message. Man, the king is going to take good care of you. You can have your own palace. You can have whatever you want. But the only thing you've got to do is you've got to curse those Israelites. He talks to the Lord about it. And the Lord says to him, go with them the next day. Go with them. Go back to Moab with them. But what's interesting is the Bible says, and the Lord was angry at Balaam. Why would the Lord tell him to go with and then be angry at him at the same time? That just doesn't make sense in a way. That's because Balaam couldn't make up his mind. He couldn't establish it in his heart what he wanted to do. I mean, he had this great temptation of all this stuff, but he wanted to do what was right in front of God as well. And and you know what? That's a conundrum that we kind of all get caught up in at a time. But he went to the king. We begin to pick up the story in Numbers chapter 23, verses 13 through 20. And this is what happened. Then Balak said to him, come with me to another place where you can see them. He's talking about the Israelites. Way up high, they could see like seven, eight miles down into the plains. Where you can see them. You will not see them all, but only the outskirts of their camp. And from there, he says, curse them for me. So he took him to the field of Zophim on the top of Pisgah. And there he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I meet with him over there, meaning while I meet with the Lord over there. The Lord met with Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this word. So he went to him and found him standing beside his offering with the Moabite officials. Balak asked him, what did the Lord say? Then he spoke this message. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I love this. Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. As we zero back this message and we think about all the blessings have been put on us, all the spiritual blessings have been put on us, what Jesus done for us at the cross cannot, cannot be reversed by you, by your neighbor, by some enchanter. It cannot be reversed. Now, if this was true under the old covenant, which is what these guys were under, how much truer is this under the new covenant? I want those words to ring in your heart this morning, though. The words, he hath blessed me and I cannot reverse it. Oh, man, 
The covenant that is ruled by the supremacy of Christ is what we are under. The covenant whereby a man is justified by Jesus' faith. The covenant whereby man is justified by Jesus' grace and Jesus' blood and Jesus' name. The covenant that put our justification in the present continuous tense. The covenant whereby Jesus is seated above all thrones and all powers and all rulers and all authorities. The covenant whereby Jesus is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Oh man, I've come by today to tell you folks that the supremacy of Christ has blessed us with the blessing of eternal life through a new covenant. This blessing cannot, cannot be reversed. You and I possess holiness, We possess blamelessness. We possess the Father's love. We possess sonship through Jesus Christ. We possess grace. We possess redemption. And we possess the forgiveness of sins. In Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, we find these words. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law? that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law or she is released from the lower court. The law is lower than grace. The law was given, grace came. The law is lower than grace. It says, if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man, while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. We've been released from the lower court. And we are seated with Christ in heavenly places on the throne of grace with him. It's like we're seated on that supreme court so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The truths we discover in Hebrews 8 reveal the supremacy of Christ. Here they are. Hebrews chapter 8 verses 3 through 13. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received, look at those next three words, is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. What are those better promises? That we have been justified. 
Therefore, our righteousness remains in the present continuous tense, which means the blessing of our justification can never be depleted, can never be taken away, and can never be reversed. Continuing, it says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. I want you to know something. Sometimes we're not faithful in thought, word, or deed. But let that scripture rise up in your heart that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They are going to become living letters placed in the body, the envelope of Christ, and sealed with the Holy Spirit and then addressed to Daddy. I will protect them and deliver them, each and every one of them, and take them ultimately to their final destination. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Friends, if there were any scriptures in the Bible, the ones that are coming up are probably some of the greatest scriptures to build confidence in your heart. I want you to hear these scriptures. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. My closing scriptures come from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stones, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater, how much more supreme, how much more wonderful, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Remember. We can't give it away. It can't be taken from us. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Friends, the glorious truths that reach out to us from the Scriptures are these. We are held together by Him and Him alone, apart from Moses and apart from the Mosaic Law. We are held together by Christ. 
We are that living letter that has been addressed to daddy, enveloped in the body of Jesus. We came through the water, we came through the blood, through that portal in the side. We've been enveloped in the body of Jesus and then sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, until the day of redemption. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing and with the riches of God's grace. He has lavished on us holiness and blamelessness and sonship and the Father's love and grace and redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Let me ask you a question. How did all of this happen? Because 2,000 years ago, the son said to his father, Daddy, there sure is a lot of lost mail. Daddy, I will rise from the highest throne, the throne that is superior to all thrones, the throne of grace. I will be crucified and laid behind a stone. I'll live to die, rejected and alone. And like a rose, I'll be trampled on the ground. I'll take the fall. So you can think of me above all. Daddy, I will live a perfect and sinless life. They will crucify me to an old rugged cross as my precious blood falls into the heart at the bottom of each letter and the aroma of my perfumed feet reach your nostrils. I will hear you echoing throughout all eternity. I have commanded the blessing. I have blessed them and I cannot reverse it. Friends, that was only made possible because of the supremacy of Christ. Daddy, I want to thank you. I grasp that truth. I rest in that truth. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places, Daddy. I want to thank you, Father, that you've infused into your children holiness and blamelessness and the Father's love and sonship and grace and forgiveness of sins. I want to thank you, Father. These are what I would see as spiritual gifts that we are so blessed with and endowed with, Daddy. I want to thank you for that. Father, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We have been put in Him, and it is in Him that all things are held together. In Jesus' name, amen.